God, that is our prayer this morning, that in life or in death, that you would be glorified. We claim your promise that you would abide with us, knowing that when we pray that prayer we just prayed, in unison, in harmony, all with one heart, that's a guaranteed answered prayer. I pray that you'd comfort us through your scripture this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out at this time for our children's church. The rest of us are turning to the book of First Peter, First Peter chapter 5. I look forward to getting back into the gospel of John next Sunday morning. I know I've had a couple questions. When are we going back to John? And that's always encouraging as we find such comfort in God's truth verse by verse through Scripture. And so we'll turn again to the book of John next Sunday morning. But for this Lord's Day, we'll be in First Peter chapter 5. And our text begins in verse 1. World War II was a dark time for the entire world in history. But a time when strong leadership was revealed. It was revealed in a negative way along the Axis powers. Revealed in a positive way along the Allies as is most of the time the case, deep suffering reveals genuine, strong leadership. A man rose to prime minister in Great Britain during this time named Winston Churchill. Churchill bravely led Europe throughout the war, often making crucial decisions as he was one of the main leaders to ensure the Allies' victory over the Axis forces. I'm currently and slowly working through a biography of Winston Churchill, fascinated by his uniqueness, by his strength, and by his resolve for truth. His first speech as Prime Minister on May 13th in 1940 was a brief five minutes. Towards the end of his speech, he included this paragraph. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all of our might and with all of the strength God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark Lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. Winston Churchill was a man of great confidence, a great leader, a statesman, And Great Britain needed this type of leader, for they were in the midst of a terrible attack. And as Churchill said, there was a monstrous tyranny at work that was seeking to drag the entire world into their evil schemes. And under Churchill's leadership, 
Europe rose to victory. Almost exactly five years after assuming his post as prime minister, Churchill gave a brief victory speech standing on the balcony of the Ministry of Health at Whitehall at what would be known as VE Day, Victory Europe Day. He gave his first speech on May 13, 1940. He gave this speech on VE Day, May 8, 1945, where he said, God bless you all. This is your victory. It's the victory of the cause of freedom in every land. In our long history, we have never seen a greater day than this. Great leadership is needed during times of great suffering. And our scripture reading this morning revealed our scripture reading this morning revealed to us that in God's providential plan the church will come under great attack and will be involved in great suffering for righteousness sake. In verses 12 and 13 this morning we read beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In verse 19 That wonderful verse, the conclusion of Peter's argument, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The question that Peter addresses that should be raised in the heart of every Christian is what sort of leadership will the church need in the midst of suffering? This is a question that's been answered in the past as God's church has come under great suffering and persecution. It's a question that's being answered now on the forefront of many new gospel advance areas. In these countries where the gospel is not known And friends, it's the type of leadership that the church will need in the coming years. As the scripture very clearly reveals to us in 2 Timothy, 1 Peter, and the book of Revelation, that these times will continue to wax worse and worse until the blessed coming of our Lord and Savior. And so in these times of suffering, what type of leadership is needed for the church? And that concept, I believe, is being communicated with this little word in chapter 5 and verse 1, so. Because of suffering, because of what the church has gone through and what the church will go through, so I exhort the elders among you. The church is under attack, and this attack will not cease until the return of the King of Kings. And make no mistake that victory is assured for the church, not in the culture wars here on this earth, but victory is assured in the sense that no matter how hard the forces of evil and darkness seek to silence the church and quench the flame of the gospel, they will not succeed. But in the midst of that suffering, 
What type of leadership does God desire to raise up for his church? In these times of spiritual warfare, as we await future glory, what type of leadership should you look for? And my dear brothers in Christ, as God stirs in your heart, what type of spiritual leader should you aspire to be? We find that answer for us given in the exhortation from Peter to the elders of Jerusalem that have been dispersed across all of these different areas and now serving as elders in these different churches. It reveals to us the type of leadership that God has ordained for his church in the midst of suffering. So here's what we will see this morning. That just like Suffering in this world reveals strong leadership. So God's desire is that his church is led by shepherds who will reflect the character of the chief shepherd, thus overseeing the flock of God in humility. Let's read verses 1 through 5 of 1 Peter 5 this morning, and we'll ask God's blessing on this text. Peter records in 1 Peter 5 in verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. I exhort the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Heavenly Father, as we look into your text this morning, would you give great insight? Would you give light to our eyes that we may see and we may obey your truth as we pray your blessing through the name of Jesus. Amen. Peter's exhortation to the leaders of the church begins in verse 2 with the central phrase, shepherd the flock of God. However, before we get to Peter's exhortation in detail, I'd like to show you four brief observations in verse 1. First question we need to ask is, who are the elders he's exhorting? If you look back in chapter 1 and verse 1, to those who are elect exiles, those are people who've been chosen by God, those are members of the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, So you've got these groups of believers who have been dispersed because of persecution. They are now gathering in their churches, led by their elders. And Peter, once having oversight of them in Jerusalem, is now writing to them, showing his love and his care. And he is writing to these believers who are suffering. And he devotes four chapters to this suffering 
and calls them to devote themselves to Christ. That when persecution arises, though the pain is great and the turmoil is is strong in their midst, their mind has already been made up that they serve a faithful creator. And thus he reminds them to commit and trust their souls whom no threat of persecution can touch. No, No one who seeks to work against you can affect your soul. And so entrust that to a faithful creator while doing good. And then he turns and he exhorts specifically those leaders in each group as we've been looking at in the past several weeks that God's, God's pattern for each individual church is that a group of elders, of pastors would lead that church and thus we have been unfolding for you as pastors and deacons what we believe will be the best model moving forward. And here... I'd like to answer the question for those of you who perhaps sense a stirring in your heart or for those who would be choosing out from among you unpaid pastors to fill that role. What should we be looking for in these times of suffering? And so we see him addressing the churches in these areas. Four observations in verse 1. Number 1, Peter is addressing these elders as a first among equals. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. He's putting himself in the same plane. He's saying there are no tiers of importance within the church. There are only elders and deacons and members. And I serve as an elder among the other elders. And so he serves among those who are in equal standing And yet, he doesn't even pause to exhort them to leverage truth in their lives. And so we see Peter here serving the pattern that he served even in the Gospels as often Jesus would address the disciples and who would be the first to speak up, whether for good or for not so good sometimes, right? Who's the leader of the disciples? who steps up to speak for them, it's Peter. He doesn't separate himself as a separate entity. He doesn't put himself on a level above everyone else and thus negating the view of our Roman Catholic friends that he was the first pope. He says, I am simply a fellow elder and yet I am leading you in this matter. And so we see the pattern for those who would practice plurality and set aside one as a lead pastor or a senior pastor of a first among equals as one who would lead the group and yet still be part of the group, a first among equals. He also is exhorting them as a witness of Christ. You see this passage says a witness of the sufferings of Christ and Some would maybe try to read too much into this phrase to say that Peter was present and and found his way back to the crucifixion of Christ. I don't think that's what he's trying to communicate. I think he's reminding them that he walked the path of suffering with Christ. He was an eyewitness account. Thirdly, third observation I'd like to give you, not only is he exhorting as a first among equals and as a witness of Christ, but he's exhorting them as a growing Christian. 
It's a growing Christian. He says, a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. With this statement, Peter reminds everyone reading and also the elders of the church that he knows what they know. They know he still has problems. And he wants them to know that he knows that as well. He's just like they are. The glory that's going to be revealed in his life is in the future. That whether Christ returns or the believer passes into heaven, it is not until that point that every believer ceases to the the need to continually change. It's a reminder that Peter himself is a sinner in need of glory being revealed in his life. It's a reminder that yes, Peter at certain times was filled with a passionate moment of standing against Christ. And yet now, his life is mostly dominated by moments of standing for Christ. Because friends, in Peter and in all of our testimonies, when we're honest, we find comfort in growing together. None of us have arrived. There's a little bit of Peter in each one of us, isn't there? That on Sunday we profess, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Monday morning there's a little bit of each one of us in which Jesus needs to say, get thee behind me, Satan, right? That's, a, that's in the same chapter. It's in the same pericope there in Matthew chapter 16, in which Peter confesses his great confession and then actually echoes the lies of the devil unknowingly to Christ. And he wants everyone to be reminded here that he is a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. So in Peter, we find comfort. Three observations there. Let's look at his charge to the elders. His charge to the elders in verse 2 He says, shepherd the flock that is among you. And this is the key phrase of Peter's charge. It is the key phrase of this passage. Shepherd the flock of God. It is the primary activity of the elder. To shepherd God's people. This is why we refer to our elders as pastors. Because shepherding is what elders do. They pastor. That's what that word pastor means. It's the the shepherding of the flock. I believe elder is a, is a title that is the appropriate title for this office in the New Testament, but I believe that the title of shepherd is a title of endearment. Pastor. Pastor, shepherd, overseers, all the same. You can, you know, I was going to say choose your poison, but I don't want to say that. It's not necessarily poison, hopefully. Choose your blessing, right? Pastor, overseer, elder, whatever you would choose there. And yet that word pastor carries with it this concept of shepherding. Shepherding. The primary shepherding that the pastor participates in is his feeding of the flock of God. But before we get into the three ways in which a pastor is supposed to shepherd, I'd like to... I'd like for you to notice a very, very important phrase 
Look down at verse 1 and verse 2, the beginning of both verses. If you write in your Bible, I would highly encourage you to circle or underline or highlight this phrase. I exhort the elders, the next two words, among you. And then in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Very, very important. Two words in Greek, two words in English with great significance. I'd like to offer you four brief thoughts. I keep offering you things before I get to my sermon, but I just can't help myself, okay? Four brief thoughts. Number one, this phrase, among you, reveals to us that the church is among the pastors and the pastors are among the church. That the pastors are called to shepherd the flock among them and the elders are called to be among the church, verses 1 and 2. I don't know if it's original with him, but the statement sticks out from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who would say, never forget that shepherds smell like sheep. That shepherds are called to be among the church, and the church is called to be among the pastors. And we see this referenced in the pastoral qualification of given to hospitality. The implications of this statement in regards to some sort of online church or only live streaming church or being a part of some sort of TV pastor's church are huge. There are times we offer a live streaming option. There are times when it is appropriate to live stream. There are times when we have live streamed the service. I'm not saying anything against people who live stream services, but if that is the extent of your church involvement, friends, listen carefully. You are in disobedience to God's commands unless it is the only option. Some of our dear brothers and sisters in Christ are physically unable to gather. And so we have this tool using modern technology for those who are unable to gather in which we can bring the teaching from the gathering to them, but it is impossible to bring the gathering to them. And thus, the church is to be among their pastors and the pastors are to be among their churches. And if it is not possible for you to be among your pastors and it is you are able, excuse me, let me back up. If, it, if you are able to be among the pastors and you are choosing not to be, that would be neglecting the assembly together. And for those pastors who are able to be among their congregations but are choosing not to be, would be shepherding in a way that would not reflect the character of Christ. Second thought. The pastor should be called out from among the congregation. This is one organism, the local church. And among the church are their elders, and among the elders is the church. Thirdly, the pastor is a member of the congregation and is part of the congregation. The pastor is not some sort of separate entity, nor is he some outside influence. 
as if you have the church and then there's the pastor. No, 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 no. The pastor is an active member in the church. And thus every expectation of an active member include ministry involvement and giving and service thus should be expected of the pastors as well. Among, it is one organism. I'm telling you, these two small words have massive implications on the way that we view leadership in the church. There's not some ivory throne or palace to which some leader should seclude himself. Nor is there an arm's length through which the church should hold their leaders. It is among, in the church. Lastly, this is also a statement that the pastors need to first and foremost focus on the shepherding of the flock that is among them. I was reading about this concept this week, and I came across a, um, an article that was written specifically to pastors, and I thought that it would be um, appropriate to read this little paragraph to you. It's written by a pastor in Minnesota, and he, he wrote the following. It's easy to be the sort of shepherd who runs around with a fire extinguisher when there's a flood in your church, because you're far more attentive to the dumpster fires online that are afflicting churches in another state or in another denomination. But wise and faithful shepherds are attentive to the needs, cares, issues, problems, dangers, temptations, and tendencies of the flock that is among them. I thought that was so wise. Friends, if you ever feel like your pastors are, are caring more about some online influence then the shepherding of the flock that is among them, you need to speak up. For God's gift to his church are leaders among them. And may the leadership of community always be more concerned with what is happening in this body than some sort of, I love that, carrying a fire extinguisher in the middle of a flood, Right? Then, then we would be more concerned with this body than what's happening outside. Can I just share a little bit of my heart? And, and, and some of you have, have either sent messages or something on social media only to be ignored by accident because I've removed myself from social media for two reasons. One, whatever information I know about about our church body, I'm now accountable for, and I was finding out way too much information about our church body, and it seemed like any information that I gathered that I then acted on always, you talk about a dumpster fire, that's what happened, okay? It never went across well. Secondly, I found myself so burdened by the cares of people outside of this church that I was limited in my emotional bandwidth for people inside this church. And can I just warn you, that's one of the great dangers of a connected generation. That when you are so connected with people that you haven't talked to in 20 years, that you're so worried about, and when somebody in your church body, in your church family has a need, you think, I'm just too tired. I'm just too spent because I've spent my heart out there. When, friends, we need to be spending and being spent here. 
among you. You didn't know there was so much in that one little phrase, did you? Among you. For the remainder of our time this morning, I'd like to give myself to the rest of the passage and seeing how a shepherd is to shepherd, how a pastor is to shepherd. And I think Peter here gives us three ways in which a pastor is to shepherd. That is, he is to shepherd with oversight, with expectancy, and with humility. And so let's look at these three areas this morning. He says, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. How are we supposed to do that? How are, what is the expectation that you should have as a church? And that is exercising oversight. Exercising oversight. This does not infer ruling in every decision of the church, as some would see. Some would see this as referring to the elders taking all the authority and decision-making power away from God's people in the congregation and thus exercising oversight. I do not believe that is at all what this is referring to. I believe clearly, as I've said over and over and over again, that the New Testament gives us a healthy picture of what we would refer to as congregationalism or since that term has been abused by many, we could say congregational responsibility. That there is a weight that should be settled on the shoulders of every single church member. Congregational responsibility. And as we work through this transition to a plurality of elders, of pastors, I believe one of the first steps for us, if God would have this for us, would be to clarify and be very specific and even Um, enshrine in our documents the necessary nature of congregational responsibility to clarify and spell out in detail exactly what that means. We have statements in our current constitution. I believe they need to be stronger and they need to be more clear in regards to every single member. I believe that our 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 constitution needs to clearly spell out that each member of of the congregation is the final oversight in regards to the choosing of pastors and deacons, in the in the clarification and choosing of doctrinal statements, that it's the congregation's responsibility to do the work of the ministry. This would include the final oversight of the ultimate. Um, statement of where our ministry is being involved and that would be our financial spending plan called our budget it would include who partners with us and our missionaries receiving those reports from our missionaries as we do every Sunday night it would include discipling endeavors among the body in the membership relationships as well as receiving members and disciplining members all of that if you read carefully in our constitution is sprinkled all the way out but i believe that we need to do a better job up front of clarifying and reminding ourselves of this nature of constant of um, congregational responsibility and i say all that to say this word exercising oversight does not remove authority from the congregation, but fuels that authority appropriately. It does not mean absolute ruling. It means a combination of physically seeing 
and then whatever is seen, then leading. And once again, you can't see to lead unless you're present. And so this whole concept of overseeing includes being physically present. And what's interesting is the church in the first century, when they heard this phrase, exercising oversight, their mind would have immediately been drawn as Peter has already introduced with this concept of shepherding to physical shepherds because this is the language that would have been used for a shepherd, a, a literal shepherd overseeing his literal sheep, okay? So now let's step out of the, physical, the spiritual concept of shepherding and step into the, the, the literal nature of a man walking or a woman walking with a staff and overseeing these little white, you know, sheep, or, or maybe they're not white, maybe they're dirty or they're a different color, but you get my, you get my idea that this is a, an actual shepherd, an actual sheep, that he's using language that would say how a shepherd treats his sheep is how an elder should interact with the church. And so this brings us to a question, what does that look like? What was brought up in the minds of these first century readers as they read this analogy, this illustration? And I'll breeze through these. It would be that the shepherd cares for the health of the sheep. The physical caring of taking care and making sure that they're healthy. And you can make all of the appropriate parallel applications to the spiritual role here. In leading, this isn't driving from the back with a whip, but leading from the front and calling to the sheep to follow. Responsible for knowing what pastures were filled with good grass and what were, which pastures were filled with dangerous weeds as he is feeding the sheep. Leading to th- sheep, great, uh, leading the sheep to grazing pastures, leading them to clean waters as a shepherd's responsibility thus is to lead the congregation to the place where they can feed. Guiding, not only leading the church, but guiding to what is true, saying since all of this is true, thus this is true as well as I just showed you with the word among you. That is taking that word and then leading you to all of these right biblical conclusions based on not only what the Bible says, but also what the Bible teaches. This includes guarding the sheep from truth and error. Guarding the sheep from pain and danger. It includes healing the sheep when they're hurt. Setting broken bones, thus the pastor using the truth of Scripture to heal relationships and personal walks with God through the Scripture. The Scripture is sufficient in all of these areas, friends. It means defending the sheep from outside attacks and standing for what is true. It means accounting for the sheep. And as the shepherd, as you see in the Gospels, as Jesus uses the same illustration of counting the sheep and recognizing that one was missing, so accounting for the sheep that God has provided. Exercising oversight. How? Well, willingly. Look at verse 2. Not under compulsion, but willingly. One should never enter into the pastoral position because of coercion or pressure. Friends, let me encourage you that as you are looking at choosing your elders, if you have to talk somebody into it, it's probably not the right thing. 
not under compulsion. The pastor should never be pressured into filling the role because of outside circumstances. We just have to have this filled. We need somebody. Please, 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 will you do it? I don't really want to. Will you please do it? Fine. Now let's go follow him. Whoa. <laughs> Hang on a second, right? We have a phrase when dealing with those who are seeking out whether or not this desire is from the Lord that they must be God-called and not mama-called. You'd be shocked at how many parents somehow think that their parenting is validated by their children entering the ministry. And if they could pressure just one, then maybe they could get a preacher out of their family. There should be no pressure for any of my children or pastor's children to enter into the ministry. If God calls them, so be it. But there should never be a coercion from parents in that way. There must be a willingness and a moving in the heart of a man to fulfill this role. Willingly, eagerly, not for shameful gain. I'll only preach on Sunday if my check clears the bank on Friday. No. Now, 1 Timothy 5, 17-18 gives us the pattern that it's best for the church, when possible, to set aside certain ones of the elders to give themselves to the shepherding and the preaching and the teaching. For both, that man who has that desire can give himself to this gifting, and the church is better off for it, and so is the shepherd. But it's not the only way. Thus, the command for, if you study out 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, set apart some. Not all. However, a man should never go into ministry as a career move. It would be shameful for a pastor to use the church and see it as some sort of career. It's actually more common than we'd like to admit for pastors to use different churches, stepping stones to get where they really want to be rather than serving and shepherding the flock that is among them. The focus here from Peter is to feed the flock eagerly. Don't fleece the flock shamefully. Willingly, eagerly, exemplary. Verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And once again, we have to ask an example of what? An example of what? How can, you, how can a human shepherd be an example to a, a sheep sheep? I don't know, what else do you say that? Uh, you know, an animal, right? What's he supposed to do when the sheep comes out, get on his hands and knees and eat grass? Show him, how can you be an example to the flock unless the pastor is a member of the church and thus functioning as a healthy member of the congregation? Thus you as a church are to call out those healthy active, exemplary members who have a desire to serve as leaders, who are willing, who are qualified to serve as your leaders, and thus they continue to serve as members. Some would see the pastoral role as some sort of exception to membership rather than an example of membership. An example to the flock. That doesn't mean perfect it means consistent example. If you expect any pastor to be perfect, you will be let down so quickly. But yet, there should be a consistent pattern. 
shepherd in a way that is willing, eager, and as an example. Not only are we supposed to exercise oversight in these ways, willingly, eagerly, and exemplary, but shepherd in a way that is expectant. Expectant. Look down at verse 4 with me. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive. It's not by accident that the book of 1 Peter, which is so focused on suffering, is also so focused on glory. Never will you find someone so longing for heaven than the one who is shackled by the pains of this world. When looking at those who, because of either a handicap or because of an outside you know, medical influence on their lives, or perhaps even because of some sort of medical condition, will never be what they aspire to be physically. Or for the rest of us who have crested that peak of, you know, uh, of humanity in your physical prowess. I had the opportunity to... I've used this as an example before, but not in this context, but to be on the field as uh, during the Clemson-Notre Dame game last year at these guys were warm, as these guys were warming up, right? And as they warmed up and did their exercises, I couldn't help but thinking, if I tried that, I think my body would explode. <laughs> as they will run full on and then turn on a dime. And these gigantic humans are moving so fast. And being on the other end, they just want to kill you, right? And they're young. They're like 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, some a little little bit older. But they haven't hit that, what is it, like 28 years old, where from everything on, your body just begins to fall apart. And you can fight against gravity, but things just start to drop, right? And all of a sudden, you wake up one morning and you go, I don't remember that pain yesterday. Why do you hurt? I don't know why I hurt. It's because we're falling apart, right? And in Peter's, in Peter's letter, oh, how he longs for glory. He longs for the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How he longs for that day when Christ will return. And I remember as a child thinking, why do old people want Jesus to come back so soon? You know, I remember thinking that. And some of you in this room who are young are thinking that exact same thing. And yet with wisdom comes expectation, doesn't it? Oh Lord, will you return today? And so how are leaders supposed to shepherd the church with expectancy? Waiting for that moment when the chief shepherd appears. The arch shepherd. That there are shepherds on this earth 
who are entrusted with leading the church of God, but there is only one arch shepherd. There is only one chief shepherd. And the responsibility of every under shepherd is to reflect the ministry of the chief shepherd. And oh, how Peter longs for that day as a shepherd when he goes, one day my example will appear. And how I've longed to look like that one and I fall short every day. And so we look for that day when Jesus will return and conquer sin. And friends, we are living in the last days. We have been for the last 2,000 years. And as we look around us and we see wars and rumors of wars, and we see our world waxing worse and worse, and yet the gospel taking a hold, We recognize that the return of Jesus is soon. Does that mean in your lifetime? I don't know, friend. You better not live like it in the sense that you need to be prepared to die. But you better live like it in the sense that he could come back tomorrow. You've been called to live in faith and to die in faith and be surprised by the second coming. So may we prepare and live in faithfulness preparing to die in faith as though Jesus will never return. But may we live with expectancy as if he would return in five minutes. This expectancy. I want to park in this concept for a brief moment as we look at this concept in verse 4 of chief shepherd. Chief shepherd. What does this mean? It means that there is a shepherd who will call all under shepherds to account one day. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, speaking to believers in the context of spiritual authority, the author of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. There's coming an accounting for under-shepherds as well. And dear brother or sister, would you listen carefully this morning? Some of you have been so hurt. You have not been hurt by the church. You've been hurt by individuals in the church. There's a big difference. Some of you have been so gravely hurt by shepherds in the church. You've been a recipient of spiritual abuse, manipulation by someone who claimed to be a caregiver. And dear brother or sister in Christ, can I employ you this morning to give that over to God? For there is coming a day when true justice will be worked out. There is coming a day when that arch shepherd will call all shepherds to account. And that one who worked out hurt against you in an unbiblical way, who rather than being an example of Christ was an example of the accuser, working out harm spiritually in your life, there is justice for that one coming that is far greater than any you could ever mete out. So please release that to God. Don't hold on to that. Take that hurt 
And would you release it to the one who will bring true justice? For the justice that is meted out on that day is far greater than any justice you could work out in your heart. And so the command is to release. Do you know what the word for release is? It's the word forgive. Forgiveness is a promise. It's a promise to release that hurt to God, to release that pain to God. And no, I am not in any way excusing the actions of the abuser by saying that. But I would implore you to turn that one over to the arch shepherd. When the chief shepherd appears, he will bring all into account. For those who serve faithfully, look down at verse 4. There's a crown of glory. Often when we see these crowns, we think of kingly crowns. But these are not golden crowns through which you will put jewels in your crown of some way, but rather these are crowns of victory, that you made it to the end. It's a reference to a wreath type, a wreath crown, a wreath type of crown that was woven and given to the winner of a race or the conqueror of some sort of event. Some would see this as a physical crown presented to Christians in heaven with which that, or, or, or after which that believer would then take that crown off and lay them at the feet of Jesus, that could be true. Others would see this as a reward given. I know a, a dear pastor who, who strongly believes that the rewards in heaven are simply a, a deeper joy that could be granted in eternity, that everyone will have joy, but some will experience deeper joy. That could be true. Some would just see this as referencing salvation, that when you persevere through suffering, thus that victor's crown in the moment when you're passed into glory... Which one is it? I have no idea. It's a crown. It's a reward given in heaven. And every time you see crowns in heaven, I think this, rather than focusing on what type of crown and all those things, I think this is the major idea. That the way you live your life on this earth in some manner or in some way will affect eternity. And so live for Christ. For the suffering of this present time is not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. The unfading glory. And whether that be a crown bestowed by Christ on which you will then bestow back to Christ, whether that be greater joy or whether that be some other sort of reward given to you in heaven, friend, your life lived on this earth in some way, affects your life in eternity. So live for Christ and look for that reward. The crown of glory. This does not mean that we earn our salvation, rather that we are rewarded in heaven. Shepherd with oversight, shepherd with expectancy, and shepherd with Humility, lastly. What is humility? 
Humility is being so wrapped up in who God is that you don't really think about yourself. You're wrapped up in serving God and serving others that how it affects you or the way it looks, the way that you appear to others or your actions being misread, you are serving God and serving others. That is true humility. I'll never forget when I was a teenager, there was a person in our church who had just began living on their own and making a statement of living on their own. They went out and bought their first car. And about nine months after buying their first car, my dad got a call. You know, he's, a, he's the pastor, and pastors know everything, and so when you have a car problem, who do you call? Call your pastor, right? So my, my dad gets a phone call, and uh, the car had stopped working, and um, we didn't know why. It was like this weird thing where it only had, you know, 30,000 miles on or so. The car was new, but, um, but the, the engine just stopped. And uh, upon closer examination in the car, when you look at the dashboard, there's a little piece of electrical tape. Uh, over one of the lights because the light kept blinking and this person didn't like the light so they just put a piece of tape over it uh, so they couldn't see it and sure enough the oil had never been changed and so what happens to an engine no matter how good of an engine when the oil is not changed eventually it will seize up because even if it's the most reliable engine in the world it needs oil to work effectively and so listen to me friend humility is the oil of the church Humility is the oil that makes the engine run. It is seeing God as the goal and others as more important. It's recognizing that this isn't about us. It's all about God. Humility, the oil that makes the church run, is realizing that the church isn't about you. It's about Jesus. That you are not planted here to be remembered, but to be forgotten so that Jesus may be remembered. That you are here to live in faith and to give yourself to a bigger cause. And that when we come together, we come together, verse 5, submitting to one another. He specifically references those who are younger. My personal opinion is that's probably those who are younger in the faith, submitting to those who are older in the faith. It could be physical. But I think following the logic of what Peter is saying is that if you're younger in the faith, tuck yourself in humility underneath those who've been around the block a couple times to learn the Christian life and to recognize, friend, that without humility, this church will seize up and will cease to function right. Because God resists the proud. He opposes the proud. And if we want grace in our fellowship, thus we must be humble. So if you're proud, repent and confess as God rewards humility. And humility is the oil that makes the church run effectively. So turn from your pride and embrace Christ. Why is it so important that this be true of leadership in our church? That's an an important question. Why is this so important? Because, friend, everything that Jesus requires of you, he fulfilled perfectly. He requires leadership to be willing, and so he willingly goes to the cross. 
He requires leaders to eagerly serve humanity without any thought of shameful gain. And so he tells his disciples, follow me for the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is not about gaining earthly influence, but building up eternal rewards. He was an example to his disciples, not seeking to be served, but to serve in every way. In humility, he took on the form of a servant in the likeness of man, and being found in the likeness of man, he obeyed even to the death on the cross. And because he aligned in his humanity in every way, in perfect faith, in humble subjection to the Father. So he was given a name which is above every name, that at the name of Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And so we align under his Lordship and recognize that he is calling us to be an example of himself. And thus Christ's likeness is our goal and should be evident in the lives of the membership of our church and thus should be exemplary in the lives of the leadership. And so we pray for our church. As we live among each other, as we serve among each other, as we lead among each other, that our lives would be a reflection of the character of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we're so thank you for this passage that reveals to us so clearly your heart for the church and your heart for your under-shepherds from among the church who would lead. I pray that you would bring faithfulness to our congregation and faithfulness to our leaders, that we may accurately represent the truth of Scripture and the pattern that you've set. May our hearts and lives be in alignment with your word.